0: welcome to another episode of you must remember this the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories, of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is another installment in our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. Just sex, not love. Just sex. And sex just isn't cool without condoms for protection. Uh, you're a hooker. Sex. He talked about pornographic material. Sex. Sex. He gave me a lot of pleasure. So we can show the sex act all over the place. Sex in the I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. Back in 1991, before social media, when 24-hour cable news was brand new and the only newspapers most Americans could easily read were their local papers, there were a handful of national magazines that could set a conversational agenda by what they chose to put on their covers. On June 24, 1991, Time Magazine enshrined a film which was pitched as 9 to 5 meets Easy Rider about two boomer women who become outlaws, driving a classic car through the American desert in an effort to escape not just the law, but also stifling expectations and oppressive double standards. Directed by a post-Blade Runner, pre-Gladiator Ridley Scott, and penned by first-time screenwriter Kelly Curry, Thelma and Louise had not topped the box office, but had sparked debate in local newspapers and relatively niche politicized forums. The time cover had the effect of collating and magnifying all of that chatter, making it feel like one of the biggest movies of the year, even if box office-wise, it wouldn't be. The conversation about Thelma and Louise that time elevated was almost entirely about whether or not it was okay for women to do things that men had always done. As you might expect, the polls of this discourse were illustrated vividly by two publications that I collect and consult for each of these episodes. Ms. Magazine, and Playboy. As we'll see, while Ms. celebrated the film as a radical statement against the systematic oppression of women, Playboy demonized the film for the same reason. In fact, in more than one column published over the course of several years, Playboy held this movie up as evidence that what feminists really wanted was not anything so prosaic as equal human rights, but instead a license to castrate and kill. Much like the discourse surrounding fatal attraction, which we talked about in Erotic 80s and which we will return to next week, the discourse surrounding Filma and Louise was fierce, multivalent, and guaranteed that the movie stayed in theaters long enough to be remembered at Oscar time. But unlike Fatal Attraction, Thelma and Louise was not a major blockbuster. Today, we're going to talk about Thelma and Louise as it plays today and as it was perceived in its day. We'll talk about the struggle just to get the movie made and we'll talk about why all of the conversation about it didn't necessarily translate into big box office and why that mattered in the moment and how it plays into the movie's complicated legacy. Join us, won't you, for part four of Erotic 90s. If you are extremely spoiler-phobic, this is where you should stop the episode and go watch Thelma and Louise. I will proceed to talk about the movie without holding anything back. Thelma, played by Gina Davis, is a bored and frustrated housewife whose husband, Daryl, is a cartoonish cad who drives a midlife crisis car at 35 and treats his beautiful, faithful wife like an incorrigible, grounded child while he goes out with other women. Thelma has reluctantly agreed to go to a cabin for the weekend with her best friend, diner waitress Louise, played by Susan Sarandon. But she's so afraid of Daryl that she can't even tell him about the trip. Instead, she sneaks out, leaving a note with a frozen TV dinner. She piles so many suitcases into Louise's boat of a car that you wonder if she's planning on never coming home. Of course, she doesn't ever see that house or Daryl again. Shortly after hitting the road, Thelma begs Louise to stop at a roadhouse so they can get their vacation started with a bang. The women are immediately approached by a sweaty stranger named Harlan, who buys a giggling Thelma drinks and dances her dizzy. Louise loses track of her friend and then finds her in the parking lot where Harlan is about to rape her. Please. You hear me? please! Harlan, ah. please! Don't hurt me, Harlan, please! Shut up! Shut ah. the fuck up, you hear me? Ah. Shut up! Please! Please don't hurt me, Harlan! You ah. bitch! Don't, don't hurt me! me. Ah. Let her go! Ah. Get the fuck out of here. Ah. Ah. You let her go, you fucking asshole, or I'm gonna splatter your ugly face all over this nice car. All right, hey, 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 just calm down. We're just having a little fun, that's so... all. Looks like you got a real fucked up idea of fun. Come on. Come on. Turn around. In the future, when a woman's crying like that, she isn't having any fun. Oh. Okay. Bitch! I should've gone ahead and fucked her. What did you say? I said, suck my cock. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Get the car! Oh, Jesus Christ. Louise, you shot him. Oh my God. Certain that no one will understand why Louise pulled the trigger, the women go on the run. Along the way, they pick up a hot young hitchhiker named J.D. This became a star-making part for 28-year-old Brad Pitt. In the middle of the movie, the group spends the night in a motel, With JD and Thelma in one room, and Louise and her boyfriend Jimmy, played by Michael Madsen, who has come to bring her her life savings in another. Louise and Jimmy spend the night talking and arguing and reaching a bittersweet understanding. JD and Thelma spend the night fucking. The sex scene would only end up taking up less than a minute of screen time, but there was allegedly a cut that was 15 minutes long. Hans Zimmer, the movie's composer, would call the long version truly the most incredible love scene since Don't Look Now. When Thelma and Louise came out, the fact that Thelma has hot, consensual sex with a stranger barely more than a day after a sexual assault rubbed some critics the wrong way. While allowing that Thelma and Louise, quote, acknowledges the presence in the viewing audience of women who have been raped, and thus presents rape not as voyeuristic entertainment, but instead as the real-life experience that audiences can relate to, both as rape victims and as rapists, Sarah Shulman called foul on the Brad Pitt sex. In real life, of course, she wrote... Very few battered and assaulted women would leap into a lighthearted, passionate and sexually awakening one night stand with a man they do not know. This is designed to make the film more palatable. I think it's kind of a fool's errand to say women who experience rape do this and do not do that. To me, Thelma's attraction to J.D. seemed like a plausible trauma response consciously or otherwise, she's trying to prove that her rapist didn't break her. But of course, Shulman does have a point about how this sex scene and the introduction of Pitt as a sort of femme fatale functions in the movie. Thelma may be trying to reassure herself that all is well, but the film is also presuming that the audience needs to be reassured that Thelma hasn't been turned off from men for life. Some rolled their eyes at Thelma's sexual liberation, as if the film was suggesting that all she needed all along was for a man to give her an orgasm. But her afterglow is punctured almost immediately when she realizes that JD has stolen the cash that Jimmy has brought Louise, which was the entirety of their getaway plan. The sex was just part of the liberation which is completed by JD's betrayal. The point it's insisting on is that a sudden access of freedom is eroticizing as well as empowering, wrote Richard Schickel in Time. Schickel goes on to make the point that whether it's enjoying sex with a stranger or holding up a convenience store at gunpoint, Thelma is doing things quote unquote, nice girls never do in American movies because American culture considers both acts to be just about morally equivalent. In 1991, as conservatives were calling for a return to abstinence and monogamy and saying men should marry a virgin and women should commit to serving one man's needs for their entire lives, Thelma did everything right, and she was rewarded for it by being neglected by her husband and assaulted by a stranger. Once she's robbed by the only guy who's ever made her come, Thelma understands that there will be no cowboy coming along to save her. She has to be her own cowboy. And once she's got a taste of how that feels, that becomes the real Pandora's box. Louise, too, has a point of no return at the motel when Jimmy makes a last-ditch effort to salvage their relationship. Scott had initially wanted to cross-cut between J.D. and Thelma having sex in one room and Louise and Jimmy having sex in another. But Sarandon took credit for pushing him to let her and Michael Madsen improvise a non-sexual encounter instead. The physical intimacy didn't feel authentic to her. In a different movie, When Jimmy presents Louise with an engagement ring, she would have understood that she had something to come back for and would have turned herself in. In this movie, Louise shows Jimmy how much she cares for him by leaving him and not dragging him further into the mess she's in. After JD and Jimmy are gone, Thelma and Louise know they can't go home again. Which Thelma articulates. I don't know, you know, something's like crossed over in me, and I can't go back. I mean, I just couldn't live. I know. I know what you mean. Anyway, don't want to end up on the damn Geraldo show. When Thelma says something has crossed over in her, she means she can't go back to timidity and fear, to playing by the rules of a rigged game in which no one would believe that what was about to happen in that parking lot counted as rape because she was a woman in the South who flirted, danced, and drank with her assailant. She doesn't blame society, not directly, although maybe she should, but in another controversial scene, she holds a cop at gunpoint and forces him into the trunk of his car and tells him that if there's someone to blame, it's her husband. I swear, three days ago, neither one of us would have ever seen a stunt like this. But if you was able to meet my husband, you'd understand why. <laughs> please. I have a kids, please. <laughs> you do? Well, you're lucky. You'd be sweet to him, especially your wife. My husband wasn't sweet to me. Look how I turned out. Now go on, get in there. Some critics would protest that Thelma and Louise treat this cop unfairly because he was only trying to do his job. But they're not punishing this specific cop for anything this specific cop did. They're punishing him because they can't punish the actual cops they believed they couldn't go to when they were raped. It's not this cop that's the problem. It's cops that are the problem. The whole second half of the movie is about rooting against the police, including the movie's most surreal scene in which a black man on a bicycle cruises by the cop car, hears the cops' pleas for help, and blows pot smoke into the air holes in the trunk. Thelma and Louise seems afraid to say anything directly about race, except to show us that the world that turns these white women into outlaws is sprinkled with Confederate flags, including on a Southern rock chic t-shirt that Davis wears during the home stretch of the movie. But I think we are supposed to think this sole character of color is ideologically aligned with the heroines. Both the bicyclist and the fugitive white ladies have no reason to trust the police. Today, Thelma and Louise, if it was made at all, would be attacked by some for being too woke. It was in 1991 too, except back then woke was called politically correct. But woke is the better word for what happens to Thelma in this movie, which if anything, is politically inconvenient and practically untenable. At one point, when it's starting to seem like the women have no chance of making it to Mexico or anywhere else with their freedom intact, Thelma says, I don't remember ever feeling this awake. She's charged with adrenaline, but she's also seeing clearly for the first time how stifling and punishing her life as an unappreciated housewife had been. As screenwriter Kelly Curry put it, it required a certain somnambulism to get through a world that thought so little of you. Thelma's been sleeping through her life, and now she's hypervigilant. After the break, a creative decision that is difficult to defend. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So, do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/remember. netsuite.com/remember. netsuite The worst part of Thelma and Louise is its very end. Surrounded by police with no road left to freedom, the women drive their car off a cliff. Ridley Scott freezes the frame with the car in midair and then dissolves into a montage of the pair's greatest moments from earlier in the movie. Roger Ebert wrote that this was the reason why he gave Thelma and Louise a three and a half star review instead of four. Quote, it's unsettling to get involved in a movie that takes 128 minutes to bring you to a payoff that the filmmakers seem to fear. Curry was adamant that she hadn't wanted the viewer to see that quote unquote payoff. She didn't want Thelma and Louise to crash and burn. She wanted she said, to see them fly. Scott actually shot an ending in which the car disappears over the cliff and the cops, led by Harvey Keitel, look over into the abyss after it. Then we would see a single flashback shot of Thelma and Louise driving on safe ground into the horizon. This version, which you can watch on YouTube, is set to B.B. King's Better Not Look Down, which was recorded in 1979, but which almost functions as a plot song for the end of this movie. I don't know if this is a better ending. I understand why the decision was made not to give Kaitel the last emotional beat of the movie, but that montage is really kind of a joke. It feels like it was tacked on to ensure that viewers walked out of the auditorium wiping a tear instead of plotting a riot. That Thelma and Louise had the inherent power to unsettle the status quo was evident when Curry was first shopping around her screenplay and nearly everyone in Hollywood was afraid to make it as is. A lot of executives and producers had a problem with the killing of Harlan and tried to change it. Can't they just shoot the guy in the leg? One suggested. Curry had wanted to direct the film herself, but quickly it became clear that the material was so potentially controversial that the best course of action would be to find a powerful male director to sign on. To have a female director, especially one with no directing experience, would be, as Curry's agent put it, stacking the deck too much on top of the two female leads. These particular female leads were very famous when they were cast in 1990, but they were not as famous as two pairs of stars who had been attached to the project previously. Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer were the two most in-demand actresses in town, but they both decided to do different films instead. Meryl Streep and Goldie Hahn pitched themselves as a team, but Scott concluded that Hahn was too old to play Thelma and Meryl was too patrician to play a waitress. Any of those four actresses would have been considered bankable, which Davis and Sarandon were not. Davis had won a supporting actress Oscar for the 1988 film The Accidental Tourist, but she had never been the lead of a hit film, and she also hadn't had a hit since the Oscar. Sarandon had a deeper resume, but though she had just had hits in back-to-back years with Witches of Eastwick and Bull Durham, neither was perceived as a hit because of her. 44 in 1990, she was perceived as an outlier who thread a tiny needle. As she was described in one profile, Circa Thelma and Louise, Sarandon is Hollywood's most exhilarating maverick the woman who rekindles Burt Lancaster's vital functions in Atlantic City, who bewitched a minor league baseball team to life in Bull Durham. She is one of the few women who can so liberally sprinkle the conversation with words like empowerment and responsibility and leave you coming back for more. Sarandon was seen as a political activist, but the movies cited as her most memorable... Atlantic City, Bull Durham, are about her sexual power. Could the latter have something to do with why she got away with the former? We have to remember that this was a moment in time when the cultural image of feminists held that they were all hags who hated men, and men could easily avoid having anything to do with feminists if they all looked unfuckable anyway. Sarandon suggested that a feminist could take the form of a venerable male fantasy, the slightly older but still smoking hot sexual expert, and depending on how you looked at it, that package could be really scary. So Sarandon was a perfect match for this material, and in some ways, should be a better mouthpiece for the movie than its director. Scott claimed there were creative reasons why this film needed to be directed by a man. Because the focus is two women looking at men, then the logic is that a man should direct it if you can find the right guy, he said. Because if a woman directs it, she might go into overkill and, you know, get into some kind of a vendetta. Though he quickly signed on to produce Thelma and Louise, Scott didn't initially think he was the right man for the directing job. He has been given credit for making a feminist statement by casting Sigourney Weaver in the lead role of Alien, but otherwise his films felt conventionally masculine. He loved the script and agreed to produce, but he thought his brother Tony might be a better fit for director. Tony Scott said, I like it, but it's not really for me. I've got problems with women. But that's the whole point dude, was his brother's response. From there, Ridley approached Jonathan Kaplan who had just directed The Accused and thought directing a second film in a row with a rape plot point might typecast him as the rape guy. A number of other male directors took meetings but didn't want or get the job. Then Scott's Michael Douglas movie, Black Rain, was released to middling reviews, some of which criticized the director for being too interested in aesthetics at the expense of substance. Scott wanted to prove he could do the opposite of what was now expected of him. So as the producer of Thelma & Louise, he gave himself the directing job. The only studio that had been willing to take a chance on Film & Louise had been Pathé, then a struggling subsidiary of also-struggling MGM. MGM Pathé had originally planned to release the movie in March, but the company had to delay the release when they ran out of money to buy ads. The marketing campaign they did launch was compromised by the studio's desperation for this movie to make enough money to keep the whole operation afloat. There was no studio in 1991 that had a ton of experience marketing movies built around two female leads. Only a few years earlier, a marketing guy working on Desperately Seeking Susan had allegedly cautioned, you put two women on a poster, people are gonna think it's a lesbian movie and back then to be thought of as a lesbian movie would be considered a stigma equivalent to box office poison. Another big challenge unique to Thelma and Louise was that the movie mercilessly mocked what studios like MGM considered to be their usual core audience. As Greg Foster of Pathé's marketing department put it, most movies were made for somebody like Thelma's husband, Daryl. That was our audience. So if that kind of guy didn't like the movie, whatever it was, we were screwed. MGM Pathé decided to risk the stigma associated with two women on a movie poster and promote Thelma and Louise as a female buddy film. The poster included an image of the actresses cheek to cheek in the Polaroid selfie they take at the beginning of their road trip. The tagline was, Somebody said get a life. So they did. This poster and the TV advertising and the original trailer make the movie look like a wild comic romp. Here's a clip from that trailer, which is all laughter and upbeat music with only a couple of glimpses of guns. Thelma. I'll get it! Thelma, I've not told you I can't stand it when you're in the morning. I'm sorry, Dalton. No. I just didn't want you to be late. Hey, how you doing, little housewife? Louise. I still have to ask Daryl if I can go. You mean you haven't asked him yet? Thelma, is he your husband or your father? Thelma and Louise are going fishing. How come Daryl let you go? Because I didn't ask him. (laughs) (laughs) He's gonna kill you. I left him a note. (laughs) Thelma and Louise are going to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a coke back, please. Thelma. Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it? There's no suggestion that there will be anything like rape in this movie. No suggestion that these gal pals will not make it out of their road trip alive. MGM Pathé, counting every penny, didn't see any point in marketing what was unusual about the movie. This was a word-of-mouth movie said marketing man Foster. The only way that people were ever going to understand it was to see it. The studio's financial problems forced them to delay the release, which turned out to be a blessing. With the North American opening now scheduled for Memorial Day, the movie was booked as the closing night film at the Cannes Film Festival in May. With this imprimatur of quality, the first batch of reviews were largely rapturous. The Hollywood Reporter called it a witty feminist version of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Variety called it a classic road movie and predicted, even those who don't rally to picks fed up feminist outcry will take to its comedy momentum and dazzling visuals. Both the LA Times and the LA Weekly treated the movie like an instant classic before it was released. The Times devoted the front page of the calendar section to a gorgeous still from the movie and Kenneth Turan's review, which positioned Ridley Scott's film as revolutionary. The American road movie has been almost chiefly masculine, Turan wrote. Thelma and Louise has changed all that, forever. Provocative, poignant, and heartbreakingly funny. This neo-feminist road movie is as pointed a look at what is timidly called the war between the sexes, as we have had in quite some time. The LA Weekly went even harder, putting the movie on the cover and running two rare reviews inside the paper, one by John Powers and the other by Helen Node. Powers worked to put the movie in historical context. Thumb and Louise are far from traditional movie outlaws, he wrote. Even if they somehow get away, they're still women in a world in which women aren't free. They're a contemporary version of those Depression-era crooks whose wrongdoing was understood by millions as a reasonable response to crushing poverty and social oppression. Bonnie and Clyde could become folk heroes both in and out of the movies because the public believed them essentially innocent, driven to crime by society's failure for very different historical reasons, this is how most of us feel about Thelma and Louise. Whatever they do, we're still on their side. He did call the final montage idiotic, writing that it makes you wonder if even the studio bigwigs who okayed the movie got nervous at the idea of free women. But it doesn't stop Thelma and Louise from being the best movie of the year. Women are never free, concurred Node, from the ever-vigilant eyes and desires of men, even less so when they're alone on the road without protection or context. On the edges of every dream of sexual adventure lurks always the sexual threat, some man to remind you that you're just another cunt. What happens to Thelma and Louise in the first act happens because they are women. In the second act, they have to run because no jury in the land would judge Louise's a justifiable homicide when Thelma and Harlan were dancing cheek-to-cheek all night. Thelma asked for it, they'd conclude, and Louise would go to jail. In this world, a woman's liberty is a crime. So Thelma and Louise are forced to drive. And when the sheltering road gives no more shelter, they fly. Even in these effusive reviews, there was acknowledgement that Thelma and Louise would not work for everyone. The male critic next to me huffed out long before the end, noted Powers in the LA Weekly. Other male critics anticipated a misogynistic reaction from the audience and tried to head it off at the pass. As the film plunges toward its lacerating climax, some may have conflicting feelings about Thelma and Louise, acknowledged Peter Travers in Rolling Stone. Are they feminist martyrs or bitches from hell? Travers decides they are neither, but others disagreed. In The New York Times, Janet Maslin wrote a rave review for Thelma and Louise's release, and then two weeks later, published another piece in defense of the film titled Lay Off, Thelma and Louise, in which she answered critics who, as Newsweek put it, have complained that the two women commit too much social and moral damage to qualify as proper heroines or perfect feminists. The aspects of this film that have raised the greatest furor are features that would be virtually routine in a comparable movie about men, Maslin pointed out. So it requires the use of a double standard to feel that Thelma and Louise fails to depict exemplary behavior when the masculine road movie has never pretended to do anything of the kind. This road movie's brand of escapism offers transcendence, not instruction, and it rises above both the everyday and the limits of its genre. Two weeks passed in between those two Janet Maslin pieces, and in those two weeks, the backlash had begun. Even at the Hollywood premiere of Thelma and Louise, there was debate as to what message about men and women viewers were supposed to take away from it. They should have called the movie Screw Men, Premier attendee Kevin Nealon told a party reporter from Us magazine, Dermot Mulrooney disagreed, saying, between bites of fajitas and fruit salad, I didn't think it was tough enough. In real life, said Sarandon State Tim Robbins, quote, there are a lot of mean men. The question of whether or not Thelma and Louise treated men fairly animated the discourse around the movie for months. In the Wall Street Journal, Julie Salomon called it a pop feminist film shot by a man who can't resist leering at his actress stars. Salomon forgives this on the rationale that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid eroticized its male stars too. The critic was more concerned with those scenes where they take horrible revenge on men they've met on the run. The punishments they need out to some of them are so disproportionate to the men's crimes that Thelma and Louise come off not as victims, but as the worst kind of bullies, weak people who trample on somebody else the first time they get the chance. In what seems like a related argument, Terrence Rafferty, writing in The New Yorker, didn't buy the premise that the cops would never understand why Louise shot Thelma's rapist. Louise makes this radical decision to go on the lam rather than face the skepticism of the authorities instantaneously and with unanswerable conviction, he wrote. For the audience, the moment requires a leap of faith that is far greater than the one the cops would have to make in order to believe the woman's story. This willful blindness regarding the double standards women are held to when it comes to defending themselves from male violence, got the perfect rebuttal in an essay by Andrew Sarris, who wrote of the dead rapist. If anybody was asking for it, he was. Why all this fuss over this piece of human garbage? One does not have to read the tabloid accounts of date rape and violence against women to know that something is stirring out there in our supposedly civilized society. One only has to listen to the laughter and cheers of women in the theater showing Thelma and Louise, to understand why the heady feeling of power coming through the barrels of guns wielded by two women helps compensate for the lingering wretchedness and powerlessness felt by a half or more of our population. Female anger was such a rare sight on movie screens that much ink needed to be spilled to contextualize it. In what looks like a response to the LA Weekly's double review, A week later, the L.A. Times ran side-by-side editorials by Peter Rayner and Sheila Benson. Though the paper's official review by Kenneth Turan had been effusive, both Rayner and Benson looked to deflate the ballooning conversation about the movie. As rigged and goofy and problematic as it is, the film has struck an exposed nerve, Rayner acknowledged. His theory was that the movie tapped into the anger he believed women felt because, in his mind, feminism hadn't worked at all. He lumped Scott's film with Alan Rudolph's extremely different and not nearly as incendiary domestic murder drama Mortal Thoughts as what he called a new-style female marauder movie, which made manifest a sort of post-feminist howl. The expectations of feminism have gone bust, and in its place is a righteous, self-immolating fury. The women in these movies reinforce each other's rage toward men. They trade on the cruelty men have shown toward them. He suggests Thelma and Louise got made because its actresses were working out a personal vendetta. Given the dinky, subordinate roles of most actresses in our movies, and given their rage at being blockaded in their craft, A movie like Thelma and Louise was inevitable. It plugs into not only the anger and frustrations of women working in Hollywood, but also their larger frustrations in society. But Rayner concludes that this feminist revenge gambit is misguided. If the only way a woman can light up the screen these days is with a 38 caliber pistol, isn't that just another form of subordination? Meanwhile, Benson took the stance that what Thelma and Louise was doing wasn't feminist at all. She wrote, call Thelma and Louise anything you want, but please don't call it feminism, as some writers are already doing. As I understand it, feminism has to do with responsibility, equality, sensitivity, understanding, not revenge, retribution, or sadistic behavior. Benson took particular exception with the film's ending. Having pushed its characters into a no-win situation, the filmmakers now cast their deaths as freedom, when in fact, their fate all along had been determined by men, not their own choice. Some feminism. This feels to me like a misreading of the ending of the film, if not everything that came before it. Thelma and Louise drive off a cliff because that is the only way they can be free of men deciding their fate. Rainer cynically suggested that Thelma and Louise hit a nerve because it turned the tables of gender response. When these issues were still being debated two full months later, the Times ran yet another editorial by Pat Morrison, defending Thelma and Louise as the kind of violent fantasy for women that Hollywood had been making for men for decades. If you gentlemen are squirming at the matinee, she wrote, it's because a movie made you feel for two hours the way this culture has been able to make women feel for years. But many felt that turnabout was not fair play. Benson also argued that the movie's male characters reflect an awful contempt for all men. This reductive argument about the film, which would be made by many, would be weaponized by those who felt it was important to brand feminists as man-haters and vice versa. After all, it was one thing when they were just giving men a hard time in the bedroom and in their dinky little magazines and consciousness-raising groups, But now they had somehow seized control of a Hollywood movie to spread what John Leo in US News and World Report called their cynical propaganda with an explicit fascist theme wedded to the bleakest form of feminism. Leo's piece on the movie, which went the 1991 version of viral, was titled Toxic Feminism. The scene is set in the Southwest, but the real landscape is that of writer Andrea Dworkin and the most alienated radical feminists. Leo writes, All males in this movie exist only to betray, ignore, sideswipe, penetrate, or arrest our heroines. Anyone who has ever gotten to the end of a Dworkin essay knows how this movie will turn out. There is no hope for women or for any truce in the battle of the sexes because the patriarchy will crush all women who resist or simply try to live their own lives. According to Times' Richard Schickel, Leo, quote, went out prospecting for a column and discovered a motherlode of fool's gold. Schickel had already reviewed the movie for time, publishing a rave that branded it as a morally firm yet very entertaining fable that reaches out to an audience far larger than its natural feminist constituency. But MGM publicist Kathy Berlin knew what a time cover would mean to the movie and she kept wooing Schickle until it happened. As Schickle pointed out, the self-serious hand-wringing over the movie's so-called toxicity was out of proportion to its commercial success. Its box office take after nearly four weeks was, quote, less than a muscular big boy movie like Robin Hood or Terminator 2 Judgment Day could expect to make on its first weekend. And yet... Thelma and Louise was also the third film that confirmed a trend. First Sleeping with the Enemy and then Silence of the Lambs became blockbusters dramatizing, quote, the judicious revenge that a woman takes on a brutalizing man. These times, in movies as in American society, Schickle declares, seem defined by perilous, off-balance relationships between men and women. Gina Davis recently published a memoir, and she has been doing interviews in which she recalls that Time ran two negative stories about the movie in this cover issue. I don't think Schickel's story is negative at all. It feels like someone who loves the movie trying to contextualize it for skeptics. But... It is very weird that Time felt compelled to run a second editorial in the same issue, as if the only way to make room for praise of this movie was to give equal time to the other side. In the second editorial titled, Is This What Feminism Is All About?, Margaret Carlson declared that Thelma Louise, quote, can hardly be called a woman's movie or one with a feminist sensibility. As a bulletin from the front in the Battle of the Sexes, Thelma and Louise sends the message that little ground has been won. For these two women, feminism never happened. Thelma and Louise are so trapped that the only way for them to get away for more than two days is to go on the lam. They become free, but only wildly self-destructively so. Free to drive off the ends of the earth. Carlson means this as a criticism, but... I think it's true that Thelma and Louise live in a world in which feminism never happened. The movie says this crime spree happens because these women and the men they encounter are still stuck in the same rules they would have been pre-women's lib. Thelma and Louise does say that little ground has been won. And in demonstrating that the only freedom of choice these women have is the choice of how and when to die and in making clear that this is a bad thing, it is offering a feminist sensibility and also a realistic one. Stuart Clowns of the Nation was one of few to connect Thelma and Louise's despairing take on the state of women's rights to the despairing state of women's freedoms in America in 1991, namely the Supreme Court's decision in Rust versus Sullivan which was handed down the day before Thelma and Louise opened and which banned employees of federally-funded clinics from giving patients information about abortion. Given the timing, I would be doing the film no favor by stressing its liberating virtues, wrote Clowns. What's the use of women's images being free on the screen if their bodies are in chains? Another point of Carlson's argument was that Thumb and Louise could not be feminist because it suggests, quote, the only thing an unhappy woman needs is good sex to make everything all right. Carlson accused screenwriter Corey of fronting for Hugh Hefner, which raises an interesting question. How did Hugh Hefner's Playboy respond to Thelma and Louise? And how did its opposite number, Ms? I've mentioned previously in this season my feeling that Ms. Magazine missed an opportunity to seize on popular culture events of the 1990s and use them as vehicles to communicate their second wave feminist point of view at a time when second wave feminism was under attack for being no fun and disconnected from the way people actually live their lives. Case in point, while numerous other publications ran cover stories about Thelma and Louise, Ms buried their coverage of the film on pages 82 through 84 of their November, December, 1991 issue. That coverage consisted of an essay by Kathy Mayo called Women Who Murder for the Man. In Mayo's view, Thelma and Louise was not about such traitors to their gender. Rather, in contrast to other recent movies like Sudden Impact, La Femme Nikita, and Silence of the Lambs, Ridley Scott's movie was, quote, in its clever subversion of a male action formula, an indictment against patriarchy. One reason why Ms. chose not to cover most pop culture circa 1991 was surely because most pop culture circa 1991 was not in line with their values. So now that there was a major film that did, in their words, subversively indict patriarchy, you'd think they'd want to shout it from the rooftops. But that issue instead devoted its cover to promoting a new self-help book about self-esteem by Ms. founder Gloria Steinem. With even the Bible of mainstream feminism apparently itchy about embracing this movie with open arms, Playboy saw and took the opportunity to categorize the feminism of Thelma and Louise as marginalized and dangerous. It's important to note that, like Ms. Magazine's belated consideration of the movie, their coverage came months after its release, Playboy threw a bomb into the discourse only after it had been simmering for months. And in so doing did a 180 from the publication's initial take. Playboy's movie critic, Bruce Williamson, had loved Thelma and Louise, calling it exuberant, spontaneous, and brimful of social comment. His four-bunny rave that ran in the May 1991 issue of the magazine must have been written a couple of months before any kind of firestorm had started over the movie but as if understanding that the core Playboy audience would naturally be skeptical about what was being marketed as a chick flick, Williamson assured readers that Callie Curry's, quote, feminism is more spirited than sour. But by the end of the summer of 1991, it was clear that Fellman Louise, to quote Andrew Saris, seems to give as much pain to males as it does pleasure to females. Thus, it provided a useful cudgel for Playboy's men columnist. You may ask, isn't it redundant to have a column called Men in Playboy? In fact, this column written by an ex-Marine named Asa Baber from 1982 until his death in 2003 often took a harder line than the rest of the publication. Baber's column led the way in terms of forwarding a kind of conservatism that went beyond positioning more rights for women as fewer rights for men. One column from 1991 discouraged men from the self-destructive act of, quote, fucking around, which is notable because Playboy was otherwise still pretty much the Bible of fucking around to the point that, as we've discussed already, they prematurely declared AIDS to be over more than once. Other men columns of the early 90s include an attack on George Bush Sr.'s manhood over his handling of Panama, a tribute to Baber's grandmother, who he idealized as one of the few, quote, special women in the world who can be as salty and funny and lively and wild as men. A report from a TV appearance with Gloria Allred, which leaves Baber concluding that, quote, there are only two types of women in the world, sisters and shrews, followed by an instruction manual for spotting the former and avoiding the latter, and a brutal piece called Dealing with Lady Macbeth, in which he slams his ex-wife for not letting him see one of his sons at a scheduled visitation because... According to his other son, Mommy said you might hurt him. Baber does not explain why Mommy would think this and instead launches into a screed about uncooperative or malicious ex-wives who derive pleasure from keeping fathers away from their children. Baber was 55 in 1991, and he was clearly going through it. By it, I mean a masculinity crisis that was evidently representative of what a lot of men were going through and which was seeded long before Thelma and Louise. But the movie crystallized something in this worldview. Baber's essay on Thelma and Louise, which ran in the October 1991 issue of Playboy, was titled Guerrilla Feminism. Most of the women in your life are still celebrating Thelma and Louise, Baber begins. But for most men, Thelma and Louise is a mixed bag of mixed signals. It mocks us and dismisses us, and it does so with subterfuge and shrewdness. The fact that Thelma and Louise is a good movie makes its politics even more sly and seductive. The acting, directing, and editing are all excellent but Thelma and Louise is also a film that trashes men. A strong element of anti-male sexism runs through it, even though the folks connected with the film deny it. He goes on to cite a number of statements from the filmmakers denying that the movie is anti-male or intended as, to quote Scott, a feminist lecture. These kinds of Disingenuous statements are examples of what I call guerrilla feminism. Baber writes, There's a lot of it in the world of this film and in our lives today. He then analyzes the movie, pausing to shame the signals Thelma is sending Harlan with her behavior since she has been dancing and drinking and flirting openly with him for some time he doesn't exactly suggest she deserves to be raped, but he does suggest that Louise's killing of Thelma's would-be rapist is going too far. And in fact, realizes the true fantasies of feminists who, thanks to this film, can bask in the glory of their increasingly harsh sexism toward men. His articulation of the creeping fear he felt watching the movie is fascinating. Davis and Sarandon play tough, gritty, beautiful women. As a man watching them, I was attracted to them at first and I did like them until I realized that if I met them on the street, they would probably blow me away if I violated their standards of protocol and etiquette. The most primitive message behind Thelma and Louise is that a lot of men need killing these days. And I suggest that, as men, we had better be alert to it. Thelma and Louise is appealing at times. It is also prejudiced and sexist at its core. The fear-mongering that Thelma and Louise was telling feminists it's okay to shoot men never mind that the only man that either of them shot was trying to rape one of them about a minute before, was maybe more in tune with the times than the movie itself, even though you really have to distort the story to end up with that reading. As Sarandon put it, the violence is primal and it doesn't solve anything. The movie is not saying, shoot your rapist and everything will be fine, And it's pretty scary that Baber thinks that the one man shot in this movie merely violated their standards of protocol and etiquette. But that was exactly the core of the argument put forth when Thelma and Louise returned to the pages of Playboy a full three years later. Though the culture had largely moved on to new representations of the battle of the sexes, Playboy saw fit to publish an essay tracing these new representations back to the pernicious influence of Thelma and Louise. I really thought Thelma and Louise was as bad as it could get, wrote exploitation movie enthusiast Joe Bob Briggs in a guest column in the February 1994 issue. After a whole movie of males behind bashed around by sensitive, courageous sisters, Surely this was the last we'd hear of that particular cartoon image. He then cites a wave of quote-unquote male-bashing movies which followed Thelma and Louise, including Fried Green Tomatoes, A League of Their Own, Sister Act, and Basic Instinct, which he describes as being about lesbian women in secret societies who can murder men at will. That seems to be the core fear here that any woman who protests the way they're treated by men must be a violent lesbian, unless they're a delicate flower. He posits that Louise decides to go on the run instead of turn herself in because, quote, the police would believe her story, but being good policemen would say, let me get this straight. You killed him for saying, suck my cock. Do you realize how many people would die every Friday night in Arkansas if you could shoot people for saying, suck my cock? Thelma and Louise, he concludes, it's not really a pro-female movie. It's, quote, anti-male. Men are the cause of everyone's problems. After hearing for the past 10 years about the way women are treated in male movies, I have to say this. Charles Bronson never killed anybody for saying, suck my cock. Briggs concludes, I have seen the future. And it has a lot of lesbians in it. In the Backlash 90s, according to Playboy, any woman who wanted something other than to have sex with every man who pursues them must be a lesbian. And because of that, lesbians should be feared. It's all tied into the male fear that men will be useless if women don't need them sexually. Of course, Joe Bob Briggs' crystal ball was faulty. We will talk about a few of Hollywood's future representations of women having sex with women in a future episode, but the reality was that Thelma and Louise, which is about two women who seem to be resolutely heterosexual, all the way up until they kiss one another goodbye, wasn't nearly as influential as some hoped and others feared it would be. Certainly, even while the film was in theaters, there was no affirmative action in terms of the way its box office was reported. Less than a month after it opened, both Variety and LA Weekly ran pieces asking the question, is Thelma and Louise one of those movies that looks like a hit, but isn't? The answer was that the box office was just another area where Thelma and Louise didn't fit the mold. No one ever saw this film as a $100 million grocer on the way out. Don Barrett, senior VP of marketing at MGM Pathé, told the LA Times, we knew that men would be challenged. The movie, after all, isn't safe. It has broken new ground. The movie never had a big box office weekend, but its audience grew in its second week, which was virtually unheard of. And it was still in theaters in September, an absolute anomaly for a movie that had opened in May. Pathé actually added 99 screens in the 16th week of the movie's release and planned to add another 300 venues, mostly in college towns. The strategy was designed to reach a younger audience the studio felt had thus far gone untapped and who didn't think of themselves as an oppressed class. We're going after the under-25s, Barrett said, those women who never experienced the struggle or fought for the right to be counted. Pathé had delayed the home video release to keep Thelma and Louise in theaters, but it only grossed about $3 million in this semi-re-release. The film did a lot better as a rental. It was nominated for six Oscars, but only Kelly Curry won. In assessing the year in film that was 1991, Premiere Magazine ranked Thelma at number seven on their list of the 10 most important movies of the year. It, quote, spelled the return of the women's movie. Or did it? Aside from the criticism that this was basically Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in drag, the more serious problem was that it topped out at 45 million. And that with more publicity and positive word of mouth than any summer picture except Terminator 2. It was an unfair and loaded comparison. Thelma and Louise's $45 million total take would be the equivalent of about $100 million today, which is certainly not nothing, but this was a year when the top grocer, Terminator 2, made $200 million in 1991 dollars. Thelma and Louise topped out at less than half the gross of Sleeping with the Enemy. Released three months earlier, that movie similarly suggested that women have virtually no choice but to use male weapons to defend and protect themselves from male violence. But it didn't inspire a fraction of the panic that Thelma and Louise did over the idea that the gender wars were a zero-sum game. After Thelma and Louise, they predicted there would be so many films starring women, Sarandon recalled in 2016. But it didn't happen. There are many potential reasons why that didn't happen. Certainly, there is still a lot of work to do when it comes to balancing the scales in terms of gendered power in Hollywood, and what kinds of films the mostly men in power make for an audience that they presume, in spite of evidence to the contrary, to be primarily white and male. But if I was a studio exec in the 90s, two aspects of the Thelma and Louise phenomenon may have given me pause. One was that the constant reporting on how this movie, which grossed about three times its budget with no male stars, and two female stars who had never solely carried a movie was not really a box office success when compared to something like Terminator 2. The reportage added insult to an injury incurred on a playing field that was so uneven, it would be a huge gamble to even compete the same way a second time. In an Entertainment Weekly cover story to promote the movie, Sarandon had said very plainly, Hollywood is only going to change if it makes a profit changing. They're not going to change through some kind of enlightenment. By reporting that Thelma and Louise wasn't a quote-unquote real hit, Hollywood, as embodied by publications like Variety, sent the message that not enough profit had been made to justify substantive change of any kind. And second, if this movie, in which one woman shoots one man was perceived as a manifesto calling for all women to take up arms against all men? How could anyone expect a good faith response to any film about women? Especially when this film's ideas were tempered by its male filmmakers, mastery of the tropes of the conventionally masculine genres of the Western and the road film. Why even try? Of course, this is the point of the backlash, to halt progress before it even reaches its goals, to get those pushing for change to stop trying. Next week, we will talk about a wave of reactionary movies made in the model of fatal attraction. As we'll see, when you make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, a lot of the details get lost. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram too. And if you go to our website, you youmustrememberthispodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, T-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes Coloring Book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.